Give me the thumbs up when we're ready. Thumbs up. Thank you, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Hope all of you are well rested. I don't know whether anyone took advantage of the extra hour this morning, whatever it is. <clears throat> and so there should be no excuse for anyone being late, you know, so early. This is actually, what is it, quarter to 10, the old time. So good to see you this morning as we continue to look at Romans. And so if you would be opening your Bibles to chapter 1 in Romans, as we continue to look at Paul's presentation of the gospel as the revelation of God's righteousness. And you remember last week we saw that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of man. And it's interesting that Paul begins his great understanding and the outline, if you would, of the gospel dealing with this negative issue of God's wrath. And I think principally we would probably start it a different way if we were talking to someone, and that's not inappropriate, it's not wrong. But what I will say is this, we all must be ready to share when we share the gospel the downside, if you would, of mankind. Because it's the downside, it's the sin, it's the wrath, it's our unrighteousness that makes the gospel the gospel. Okay, so we must see it that way. And you remember last week that man's response is unrighteous, that God's wrath is revealed against the unrighteousness of man. So the issue in the gospel... The issue with God in relation to man is not is man doing good or is he this or that or the other thing, but the issue is the stark distinction between God's own personal eternal righteousness. He is right in every aspect of himself, right in everything that he does, right in everything that he does not do, right in every activity, in every motive, in every decision. God is always and eternally right. And in fact, the word righteous is only understood in reference to who God is. So in order to know what is right or what is not right, God is the defining issue. Never anything of or about man or this creation or what we see and hear in the natural. God is the arbiter of what is right. He is the plumb line. So everything of rightness must be measured against God himself, measured against what is understood of God through his word. And then once we have determined whether something is righteous or not, then we know what to do and how to proceed. So... Man's response to unrighteousness is what? Remember we saw this last week. He suppresses the truth in his unrighteousness. And we talked about the truth of what? What truth is man in, uh, suppressing? It is not just general truth about this and that and the other thing and uh, truth about man, truth about whatever, but it is the specific truth that only God is righteous. Man suppresses that. In man's unrighteousness, everything of and about man is a constant and continual suppression, working against and opposition to God's own personal righteousness. 
And you remember we saw this, that man was created to be the reflection or the image of God's righteousness. And so as a result of the fall, man has continually, purposefully, passionately, persistently, in ways that he's not even aware, just being a normal human being, a normal human being apart from God is an oppression, a suppression of God's righteousness. Just living a normal human life apart from dependence and trust in God is an opposition to God's righteousness. Now, we don't think that way as believers, do we? Now, come on, do we think that way? We normally look at life and we look at people, and when we see the bad sins, we say, those people are opposing God. But when we see, quote, the good people, then we have a different opinion. But God has this, everything and anything, that in any way, to any extent, is not of my own personal righteousness, is unrighteousness and I am opposed to it, and that is opposed to me. So there's a very, if you would, white and black line here. There's no gray area here. you either on one or the other. And so what we saw last night was Paul, uh, last week, Paul showed that both Jews and Gentiles both suppress God's righteousness through their unrighteousness. Both of them do this, but they do it differently. The Gentiles reject God's righteousness. They are deliberately suppressing the truth about God's righteousness through their active rejection of His law and of what they know by conscience, through their immorality. But the Jews, or the moral and even the, quote, moral Gentiles, are equally unrighteous. Why? Because what they do, they substitute their own righteousness, if you would, what they call their own righteousness, their own goodness, their own works, their own behavior, what they understand as their own obedience to God, whether it's the law or through their conscience, they are substituting for what is God's righteousness something of and about themselves. So you see, one group rejects God's righteousness by their unrighteousness, and the other group substitutes their own, if you would, what they call or think is righteous behavior for God's righteousness. So both, both are equally unrighteous as they express their unrighteousness only differently. It's just the dif difference. The only difference between the two is the expression of their own unrighteousness. Now, why, again, why does Paul emphasize this? Why do we emphasize this? Because we as <coughs> believers must be very clear on what is going on in humanity if we are going to be more effectively used as God's gospel weapons against unrighteousness as He uses us by the Spirit to bring His righteousness his righteous demands, his righteous person, his righteous character against the unrighteousness of believers to overcome that by the Spirit, to win them, if you would, and save them into his righteous kingdom. So we have to be very clear on this. Let's not be muddled by what the world says and by what people think and by what we think we see in the world. So 
Let's talk this morning in verses 19 to 20. Let's look at verses 19 to 20. And we're going to see the different ways that this unrighteousness works out. First, the unrighteousness of the Gentiles. Now, in this particular section, I believe Paul is basically emphasizing the Gentiles, but there is an issue that is referred to in these first verses that have to do with all of us, whether we were morally unrighteousness or immoral unrighteous whether we were morally unrighteous or morally righteous. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? You see, and, and I think, well, I know we need to think that way. So verse 19 to 20. So remember, man has rejected, suppressed the truth. Therefore, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Now you see the question comes up, wait a minute. How can someone reject the truth if they haven't heard the truth? What about the people in China? How many of you haven't been asked, what about the people in China? What about the people in Africa? What about the people in West Wego? What about the people in New Orleans? What about any people? The same is true wherever people are. It doesn't matter where the people are, the same truth prevails. And let's make sure we see these two verses. For what can be known about God is what? Plain, not obscured. Because God has shown it to them. To whom? To all mankind. For His invisible attributes, what does that mean? His eternal power and divine nature have been what? Clearly perceived clearly seen ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse what does this mean that the cosmos is the clearest natural revelation that there is a god in heaven it is the clearest revelation that there is a God. You see, there is no such thing as an atheist, period. It does not exist. And so, as I said last week, when someone says, I'm an atheist, don't ever say, well, you know, John said, John's an atheist. Don't ever do that. John's not an atheist. Brenda is not not an atheist. Sam is not an atheist. What you say is, he says, she says she's an atheist. Because if you agree with them that they are an atheist, then you are agreeing against God. What does the Lord say here? Everybody knows that God exists. Amen? Everybody knows. So let's make sure we get our terminology. So when someone says to me, I'm an atheist, I say right back, no, you're not. Oh, rather than, oh, oh, you're an atheist. Oh, oh, wow. Now, what do I do? How do I approach? I, I need to be very good. No, you're not an atheist. I am an atheist. No, you're not. Challenge them against with the truth of the Word of God. Amen? Let's not challenge them politically and socially and economically and mentally and emotionally. Let's challenge them with the sword of the Spirit. Because only the sword of the Spirit will cut through their lies. Amen? And their deceptions. So, you ain't no atheist. 
there's a God in heaven. And every single person who has ever drawn breath on this earth knows that there is a God in heaven. And all will stand before God one day and they will hear this word, you are without excuse. No one will stand before God and plead ignorance. No one. So much more to say, but we do need to move along. I don't want to make this second part of last week's lesson a third part. God has given mankind a witness. Remember in Psalm 50, verse 6, what the heavens declare the righteousness of God. Amen? The heavens are a declaration of that righteousness. Remember in Acts, uh, John, what's the name of the first book of the Bible? Help me. Genesis. Remember in Genesis 15, the Lord is making a promise to Abraham, and Abraham says, how do I know that you can do this? And God says, hey, look, step outside and look up. Look at the sky. The one who made the heavens and the earth, can he not promise and fulfill his promise that you're going to have a son? And the Bible says in verse 6, and Abraham believed God and it was credited him or counted to him or imputed to him as what? As what? Righteous. Righteousness. Not just, hey, Abraham, that's a good thought. Hey, babe, you're doing right. It's God was giving Abraham a revelation of and imparting to Abraham his own righteousness. It is the issue of righteousness here. God's rightness. So look at the heavens and let the heavens speak to you. If God, if you are in an issue in your life and there's a difficulty and a problem and you're wondering, can God do this? Can God, quote, come through? Look at the heavens and decide that the one who put it all together, can he not in my life touch me Minister, change, lead, adjust, lift up, tear down, whatever he needs to do. Can he do that in me? Can he do it in you? Next time you equivocate, I'm not sure. Run outside and look up and see, if you would, the natural face of him who lives in us. Let's be assured that this God can do for us according to his will and manifest his righteousness in us. Can he not? Amen. <clears throat> Let's look at verses 21 to 32. Verses 21 to 32. Their deeds are the fruit of of their rejection. Remember Matthew 7, verse 16, by their fruit you will what? Know them. Their deeds are the fruit of their reaction. Now let me, let's, let me say this before I read this section. Mankind is under the judgment of God's wrath and condemnation, not because of what we do, it's not an issue of what we do. If it were, then maybe we would have some kind of a hope to do it right. The doing, the activities, the sin is not the issue. The things that we do is not the issue. These are the fruit of the root. 
You see, the root produces the fruit, and the fruit proves the root. Amen? The problem with that flower bush that's not blooming in your yard is not the leaves. It's the root. Something's happening in the root system that's not doing it right. Therefore, the leaves and the flowers and the whatevers are not functioning right. Isn't that right? It's an indication that something is wrong underneath the ground. Are oh, you with me on this? This isn't high cotton, is it, for you? You understand this. And so when we read these things, and as believers, typically we, we, we say, well, look at that, look at that, look at that. All that stuff that we're looking at are merely the leaves on the tree that is planted in the soil of unrighteousness and everything that tree produces, whether it's, quote, good things or bad things, however we consider it, all of it's unrighteous. All of it is because its roots are in unrighteousness and the only remedy for that tree is to be plucked up out of that unrighteous soil and be replanted in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the only hope. So let's read this. Who are these people? These people are the ones who know there is a God but have rejected it. Now, this applies to all of us, Jews and Gentiles, but it works out differently in the Gentile pagan world as it did in the moral world. For all they, although they knew God, what happened? They did not honor Him as God and gave thanks, give thanks to Him. And as a result, what? They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts became darkened. Is this not what happened to Adam and Eve? Is this not what happened and continues to happen in every person born of woman? We're all born this way. <clears throat> Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Remember the image of God in man in Genesis 1.26, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. This thing about idolatry, this is idolatry. This is the issue in sin. Taking something about myself, about anything, and replacing God with that thing. Replacement of God in any area of life is idolatry. And it is a massive and perhaps the massive issue that's happening in the world today. And it's, I suppose, more concerning to me every day as I live how much the church is falling for the idolatry of the world and we're not even aware of it and we have to be much more aware of what Satan is doing through the idolatrous practices and the activities of this world seducing and sucking us not out of Christ but sucking out of us the dependence that we have on him on Christ and serving the purposes of Satan through these idolatrous activities. It's a thing I don't want to even get into. You can see me kind of wrestling with it right now. Therefore, what happened? God gave them up. Now, you're going to see God gave them up is repeated a few times here. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Remember? 
he's going back and saying suppression of the truth. What is the truth about God? He is righteous, man is not. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature, that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men consuming shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, let me say this. This is an issue of homosexuality where the church unfortunately becomes fixated in this world this is just one activity among thousands that are indicative of unrighteousness this is not the problem with people that they may be either heterosexual adulterous homosexual whatever that is not their problem their problem is that they are embedded and imbued in unrighteousness. Can we stop making certain sins the issue of the day and make what God makes the issue of the day unrighteousness, which produce these kinds of sin, which are socially and morally have their inundations and their gradations and whatever. But before God, the whole thing is a mess. And since they did not see fit to knowledge, and so what is Paul doing? He's just describing the pagan world here. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Wow, that is in the same list as homosexuality. They are foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now stop there for a moment. This, I believe, is a descending order of debauchery, if you would, or a, it's like starting at the top of the staircase and going down to the basement. And when he gets to this last one, what is, does anybody's Bible translate this merciless or without mercy? Anybody's Bible translate that? Because the word ruthless means it's the opposite of mercy. It is the opposite of mercy. And who is God? He is the God of all mercy. You remember in Ephesians 2, 4? But God being rich in mercy. So the furthest place you get to in the activity of your sin is not all these things that you're doing, but that which totally captivates you as an unbeliever and that you are unmerciful. You are the furthest from God's character now that you could be. And so the church needs not to emphasize particular sins and rail against these issues of society. We need to see that all of this, all of this is unrighteous. But the worst, I believe, of this list, which hits all of us some kind of way probably from time to time, is this issue of not showing mercy not showing mercy. I struggle with this one in my life. Anybody struggle with this in your life? Not showing mercy. This is as far, I think, as you can get from the character of God. 
merciless, ruthless, without mercy. Though they know God's decree and that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, Paul constantly says what? They know better. They know better. They know better. So, you see, our task is not to convince people that they are sinning and that what they're doing is contrary to God's will. You don't have to do that. You don't ever have to do that. God has already told them. They already know it. They may be ignoring it. They may be pretending. They may be whatever it is. They know these things. Our task is not to convince them of their sin. It's to show them the righteousness of God and who God is and share the positive word of who God is and show them and they will begin to see that they are sinners. Jesus said they would not have known sin unless I would have been there. And once I stepped in and the man of righteousness was among these people, guess what happened? The Holy Spirit began to convict these folks of their unrighteousness and began to draw the righteous people, those people whom God would save, to Christ. And those who would not be saved, they were repelled by Jesus. He didn't come in there and try to give a whole systematic whatever and an apologetic about why you're a sinner and why this is wrong and what this and that. He began simply to announce the truth of the Word of God. We need to spend more time in the declaration of God's Word to people than worrying about how to convince them that what they're doing is wrong. Because the Holy Spirit will do that. It isn't that we never say something is wrong, but every time we mention anything that is being shown as wrong, as sin, what we must not do is to detail that or to what we're uh, emphasize that, but to show that that is a revelation of something very, very deeply wrong in you. And that sin that you're doing right there is indicative of the worst place you can be. You are outside the revelation, the community, the relationship, the fellowship of God. You are under the wrath of God. That's what that shows me. So we need to be very careful of how we deal with this, if you would, immoral issue in the world. When you see the immoral behavior of others, don't fixate on their immorality. Begin to see it as an opportunity that God has given you <coughs> that these people are unrighteous and they need to begin to be shown and share the gospel of God's righteousness. Amen? And God will do the work. So let's not fixate on the wrong issue. The issue is the power of the righteousness of God's gospel to save the unrighteous people. In chapter 2, verse 3, I'm sorry, in chapter 2, all the way to 3, 8, chapter 3, 8, what we have is a, is a rejection of God's righteousness through moral behavior. Now, I'm not going to read this section. I was going to, but I, I want to spend a little more time at the end doing something else. So I want you to read this section because Paul deals with the righteous, if you would, so-called in their own minds. Those who are acceptable to God, those who are doing right, those who are obedient, those who are keeping the commandments, those who are, you know, in the general understanding that they have, that they're walking the right way. The problem is they are all depending upon who they are and what they have done and have rejected the necessity 
that they need to be infused with God's righteousness. They're rejecting, rejecting the necessity of their salvation. And how many of us were like that maybe before we were saved? And how many of us know people like that today? The moment you start talking about needing to be saved, you need to, have a, you know, you need to receive Christ, Jesus died for you. The moment you do that, they begin to tell you the things that they have done. I shared the other day with a fella at the coffee shop, and he asked me, you know, how long have I been saved? I shared that with him, and uh, he asked me a little bit more about it, so I started to share, and, and what do you mean by that salvation? So we started to talk about what the issue is with God of saving us, of redeeming us, of the necessity of us needing to be forgiven, and et cetera, et cetera. And we went through that. I went through that. At the end of it, I told him, I said, Van, this is critical for you. You need to decide how to relate to this. And as he's getting up, because I had constantly said, it is not what you do, constantly. He got up and he said, you know what, well, I'm going to try more harder. You see, it's imbued in fleshly man to work. And even in us as believers, it's still there according to the flesh that we still must do something to win God's favor. I need an answer from God, so this week I'm going to spend more time reading my Bible. Well, it's good to read your Bible to find God's answer, but not in order to win God's answer. There's a difference. Do you know the difference? We're not currying favor with God. We have God's favor in Christ. We can't get more of God's favor than what we have in Christ because God favors us as much as he favors his own son. So if we could get more, then Jesus doesn't have it all. And certainly we should pray and read the word and obey. But that's not to curry favor. That's to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit so the favor of God can be working in and through us in a more dynamic and inclusive way. We're not doing it to get. We're doing it because we have. Does that make sense? See, I don't have to repent of a sin that I've committed in order to be forgiven because I am already forgiven in Christ of every single sin that I have am and ever will commit therefore being and having been totally forgiven I can now repent but I don't repent to be forgiven I repent of sin because I am forgiven so it makes sense to you so don't think, well, unless I ask God for forgiveness, he won't. Well, you know, the issue of repentance has an issue of fellowshipping and functioning in this relationship, but it has nothing to do for a believer of in and out of the relationship. Let us be freed of these bondages that we put on ourselves and sometimes others do. Well, if you don't confess that, if you don't ask for forgiveness, you, you, you may not be saved. Nah. No. We are saved by grace through faith. Amen? Amen? We're saved. And God is working out in us. And when we sin, we confess and we, we repent. And God continues to build and move us along. Aren't you glad of that? You see, the good people would agree that such evil should be punished. Can you imagine all the Jews saying, yeah, give it to them. Yeah, those dirty, filthy, yeah, those nasty, filthy things out there. And that's how we think. However, what about some of the Gentiles, especially the Jews who had lived moral lives? Surely neither are rejecting the truth and are subject to God's wrath. 
You see, they thought that their deeds were righteous. They failed to understand that only God can produce righteous deeds in them. And so the result is that their substitution made them as guilty as the Gentiles. Amen? <clears throat> A good, moral, upstanding Methodist, Baptist, Catholic, whatever person before God is as guilty as that filthy thing wallowing in his or her sin, debasing him or herself on a regular basis. The filthy junkie in the ditch is as equally condemned as the lovely lady in her refinery, both rejecting the righteousness of God, both of them equally needing to be saved. Amen? Let's be careful how we see others. We need to see them as God sees them. <clears throat> you see, the revelation of God's righteousness was given to the Gentiles in their conscience and, at, and to the Jews at Sinai through the covenant, remember the, uh, the law. Both groups thought that they were righteous because they practiced God's righteousness. What, that, that's what they thought. But what did they really need? What then? Are the Jews any better off in 3.9? What did they? Are the Jews better off? Well, in a certain sense, yes, because they had the covenants and whatever. They have, if you would, a heads up, if you would. Are the Jews better off in their practice over the immoral Gentiles? Are they better off? Paul says what? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's verse 9, chapter 3. Now, in the next set of verses, 10 to 18, <clears throat> Paul gives six scriptural indictments against mankind, and I want to just go through these and make sure we get the context. Make sure we get the context. So let's look at verses 10 to 18 in chapter 3 of Romans. Make sure we get the context, because what Paul is doing here, he's concluding, he's summarizing, he's showing that what I have been saying from verse 1, verse 18 of chapter 1, all the way to verse 9 of chapter 3. He says, I want to give you a summation of this. I want to put it all together in these next nine verses. You understand? So he's collecting everything he said, unrighteousness of man, suppressing the truth, the Gentiles' immorality, and the Jews' morality. I want to take it all and show in this succinct way what God is telling us. So verse 10, how does it start? How does verse 10 start? <clears throat> what? None of what? None of what? What word? No, no, what word? Oh, right. None of what? Righteous. You see, do you see the foundation? It's the issue of righteousness. See, Paul goes back to the issue again. He does not deal with man's behavior as the essence of the problem. He deals with man's character in relation to God's character. None are righteous. Why? Who is righteous? Only God is righteous and no one else is righteous. And unless God imputes that righteousness to us, none of us are righteous. Now, this is critically important because we're going to see that we become righteous not because of what we do, but because of what someone else has already done and it is given to us as a gift as a result of us. Then we become righteous, if you would. By a gift. So in verse 10, none are righteous, what? In case you didn't get it, none are righteous, what? No, not one. What about my mom and them? 
What about my aunt who was so sweet? Well, I know the guy in the ditch over there, that filthy homosexual. I know he's not righteous, but what about? No one, none are righteous, no, not one. Now, that's the charge. He sums up everything that he said. Now he says, let me give you a few examples. There's the charge, verse 10. That's it. None are righteous. No, not one. That's what he's been saying since chapter 1, verse 18. Do you see it? That's what he's been saying. Now, let me give you a few examples, he says. Verse 11, no one understands. Now, what does it mean? Does it mean that no one has an understanding of God and no one has an understanding of the Bible? No. It means that no one understands within the context of being righteous. No one has righteous understanding. We have natural understanding, don't you see? Right, Gordon? Natural understanding. Well, we have that. I mean, it would be stupid to say, no one understands. Well, of course people understand. What do you mean, Bible? And Christians have argued about this. Well, this can't be because I know somebody who does understand it. They're not a and they do. It's a context of what? Righteous understanding. Do we see that? Can we begin to get out of this issue of what we're thinking he's saying and see what Paul is really saying? So no one understands. No one what? What's the next part of that verse? No one what? Seeks for God. Oh, wait a minute. I know plenty who are seeking for God. I know everyone is seeking for God some kind of way. And by being a Buddhist or Shinto or being a Jehovah's Witness or Baptist or Methodist or Catholic or being a whatever, people are seeking for God. No, they're not. Now, seeking for God how? Seeking for His righteousness. I will give it to you that people are seeking religious and spiritual experiences regularly and continually. Regularly, McKay. All day long, people are seeking for religious and ex spiritual experiences all the time. Jody, you see that? All the time, seeking, seeking, seeking. Well, I know people seeking for God. And New Orleans is not God, it's God. You don't say God to New Orleans. Oh, what's, who's God? But that's not what Paul is saying. Just the issue of, I'm seeking. He's saying no one is seeking the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness which is the issue here, not the issue of seeking. Well, I know someone who said that they sought for Jesus and could never find him. Well, of course not. All have sinned and turned aside. Amen? How many? Why? Why have everybody sinned? Because everybody is under unrighteousness. And every deed, every thought, every motive, every act in the context of unrighteousness is unrighteous. Everything in us before we're saved, everything is within the context of the result of and the display of unrighteousness. You see, this undoes people, doesn't it? Because, you know, we kind of think, well, you know, I know some folks are bad, but I don't think they're that bad. We're, 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 we're making evaluations on the natural level, and God is leveling that level. 
and saying, this is the way I see it. And honey child, when we stand before God, it's going to be his perspective that takes the day. Amen? <laughs> our day, our perspective isn't going to have very much to do on anything to do, actually. Together, they have all become what? Vain or worthless as far as their deeds are concerned and who they are. Oh, look at number C. I mean, 12, the rest of that verse. What does the rest of verse 12 say? No one does good. How many? No, not one. Now, now let's be honest here. Let's be real honest. How many of us have seen a lot of unbelievers doing good? Come on. Yes, we all should raise our hands. The person who sacrifices himself and throws himself in front of a murderer and saves three children out of school, is that good? I mean, if those were your babies he saved, would we say that was good? Yes. Well, well Ronnie, I, you know, I saw that. That man did that, and he died. That was good, brother. Certainly it was good. Who is denying that is good? Anton, are you denying that's good? Ed, are you design, denying that's good? No. Cliff, no. AJ, oh, sorry to wake you up. AJ, no one is denying that's good, isn't it? Someone who sacrifices himself to save your child's life. That's good. Well, how can the Bible say no one does good? Good in what context? Good in relation to it being because of, empowered by, and a revelation of God's righteousness. You remember the lawyer that came to Jesus and he said what? Good teacher. Now, what did Jesus say? Oh, thank you, man. I'm, you know, that really encourages me today to do a whole lot better job. You know, you see me as good, man. Because I've been really thrown around and impugned by these people. But thanks, Annette, for calling me good, sister. I like that. What did Jesus say? Why are you calling me good? Ain't nobody good except God. Do you see Jesus' words and no one does good, no, not one? Do you see that? What is Jesus referring to? Righteousness. Why does he tell that lawyer that? Because that lawyer isn't approaching Jesus, trusting him as the son of God's righteousness. He's just looking at Jesus as a possible this or that or the other, whatever, and a miracle work and a great guy and all that, doing all these good things, this humanly good man. Therefore, he says, you're good. And Jesus said, don't you do that to me. You see, that's the devil's temptation. Don't you tell me I'm good. I don't take that. Only God is good. Is Jesus good? Obviously he is. But not the context that the lawyer was talking about good. No one does good. How many? No, not one. And so in the rest of the verses, Paul is describing what that looks like. Their throat open grave, their tongues are deceived, you know, the venom of asps, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, swift to shed blood has ruin and misery where peace they have not known there is no fear of god before their eyes so 19 and 20 the conclusion now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to god for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since the law since through the law comes the knowledge of sin you see you can't get it by your works. Why? Because every work that we would do naturally is a work of unrighteousness. So now we can understand why Paul defines the gospel as revealing the righteousness of God. 
What is man's need? Man's need is to be declared as righteous by God. And so now we can begin to see that the work of the gospel is to produce in us God's own personal righteousness, out of which will then be the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of justice, the fruit of mercy and love, the fruit of who God is. But it comes out of this whole issue of God being righteous as a gift from Him. Now we're ready to look at how God achieves this righteousness in us. And so next week, we'll look at the next set of verses from 21, I think, to 26 or 27. I can't remember exactly where I'll stop for next week. But we're going to look at possibly the greatest and most succinct statement of the righteousness of God and His work of doing that work in us. So please come next week. Let's be on time, and let's see what the Holy Spirit has for us. Thank you so much.